0: Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.
1: This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating.
2: When we go around and do stuff in the world, we don't just look at a person and say, oh, that's Alan's face. That's it. End of story. We say, okay, there's Alan's face. You know, what should I say to him? What is he thinking now? What am I going to say next? Where did I see him last? All, all of those things require other brain regions. So these, all of these regions need to be interacting with, talking to each other, sharing information. How information moves around in the brain from one region to the next is something I am deeply interested in. What shunts it in one direction rather than another direction? I think that would be really cool.
1: That's Nancy Canwisher. She's a neuroscientist who discovered a part of the brain that I personally have a little problem with the part that allows us to recognize faces. So I was eager to catch up with her on her latest research, which turns out to be all about the theme of clear and vivid, connecting and communicating, how different areas of the brain, each specializing in different tasks, talk to each other. This is going to be great talking with you because what you do is so fascinating in itself, finding specialized areas of the brain.
2: I know, lucky me.
1: Isn't that something?
2: I pinch myself every day. Like, do, how do I get to do this?
1: These parts of the brain that are dedicated to certain tasks and, and apparently only those tasks.
2: Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I I, I like it because I feel like we're looking at the brain to get a kind of rough sketch of the mind,
1: right? Like who we are. How cool is that? So the thing that I am especially interested in your special areas is that you figured out, This special area devoted to recognizing faces. And that's my problem, is I have face blindness.
2: Uh Uh-huh. Have you been tested?
1: Not by anybody official, but I've been tested by life. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. I didn't recognize my own daughter twice.
2: Wow. The good news is we and others have shown uh, that face recognition ability is completely uncorrelated with IQ. (laughs) <laughs>
1: so <laughs> it's too late to tell me that
2: <laughs> <laughs> so don't worry and the thing is you know your face recognition system it's just a special part of your brain it's not all that related to how the rest of the brain works and so if that bit isn't working well so what it's just one little piece it's not related to everything else
1: apparently i'm not the only one it's a surprising percentage of the population seem is it 10 percent
2: Well, it depends on your threshold, but the bottom 2% of people is really, really bad. Uh, Uh, Like you said, failing to recognize family members. The
1: reason I didn't recognize her was on one occasion, she had changed the color of her hair.
2: Well, that's not fair.
1: And (laughs) on the other occasion, she was wearing a baseball cap. (laughs) Because as as you know, we, we use cues, those of us who have this problem use cues like posture, hair, clothes yeah glasses when we watch a movie together i have to say to my wife have we seen this character before and she'll say yeah it's the star of the show
2: i have so been there i, I don't know if i'm quite as bad as you ellen but so I'm you have it bad.
3: too you have
1: it I'm, too
2: i'm pretty bad and my partner has to talk me through movies as well
0: no
1: yeah. kidding you know i i ch- chat gpt told me that you have face blindness oh is that right yeah and I thought it was maybe hallucinating because it tried to cover its tracks by saying, "Not many people know this."
2: That's <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Well, you know, it's actually weird. I I haven't actually taken the official, bona fide test to be certified, and I'm not sure how bad I am, but I'm definitely on the low end of the spectrum. I'm I'm not good.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm not the worst. I, I've seen descriptions of really, really unfortunate cases.
2: And and Alan I'm sure you know that that the other end of the spectrum is really interesting too. Do you know yes, about super yes.
1: recognizers? Super recognizers the, the cabbies in London seem to have that. Right. And or many of them do anyway.
2: Right. And the interesting thing is if you're that good, people who are that good actually routinely have to conceal it. Because oh, otherwise why? It, it creeps people out. <sighs> like if I said If you weren't Alan Alda, if you were just like a regular person and I said to you, you know, I was standing behind you in line waiting to get movie tickets four years ago, you would turn around and say, get away from me. Who are you?
1: These specialized areas are around the head, around the brain. But in the center of the brain, mostly isn't it mostly general computing going on?
2: It's just a bunch of goo. No, I'm yeah. kidding. Um, <laughs>
1: well, but there are not, not so many specialized areas.
2: Well, that's there. not quite right. I okay, mean, I'm, good. Okay. Straighten me out. Okay, okay. Let's start with the basics. Okay, so the cortex um, is the outer surface of the brain, mm-hmm. uh, and that's where most of conscious processing happen happens. Perception, language, understanding, thinking—most of that stuff goes on in the cortex. It's the size and thickness of a large pizza. You have to fold it up to fit it inside your head. That's why the brain is all crinkled. And underneath all of that, you have a lot of subcortical structures. And since I mostly study the cortex, you shouldn't believe a word I say about subcortical structures, um, but many of them are quite specialized. So, you know, you have the amygdala, which is involved in in various, um, you know, famously in fear, but also in other emotional responses to visual and other stimuli, Uh. Um, you know, the hippocampus, which is not specific for particular content of information, but which is critical for establishing long-term memories. And you have, you know, the nucleus accumbens and other regions that are involved in reward-related processing. So there are a lot of subcortical structures that have quite a division of functional labor, uh, but in much more kind of, I don't know, fundamental functions, not content-specific functions like Faces and language and other people's thoughts.
1: So what I wanted to ask you was, could a part of the brain that's not devoted to recognizing faces take over that task?
2: Yeah, great question. And as far as we can tell, mostly no. Um, that is, if, if you have the great misfortune to have brain damage to your uh, fusiform face area as an adult... Um, you are probably not going to get that function back. And it's an interesting question why you can't train up nearby cortex to do that task. After all, there's a lot of cortex that's generically involved in perceiving object shape. And why can't some of that take over this function? But apparently it can't because people who have brain damage and lose that function in adulthood typically don't get
1: it back. Well, that covers one of my interests in what you're finding out about my brain. Another great interest I have is food. That's some of your latest work, isn't it?
2: Yeah, it's quite a funny story. you know we had we had looked for food selective responses in visual cortex um, a couple of times before and not found it. And I was not looking for it. I was not. It was not my goal. But my amazing postdoc, Minakshi Kosla, um, tried a very different kind of data analysis that we've become enamored of recently. Instead of standard science, where you invent the hypothesis, then you design an experiment to test if that hypothesis is true, like, okay, maybe there's face selective machinery in the brain. Let's scan people looking at faces and objects. Let's see if there's a specialized system. Oh, there it is. That's the standard thing. Hmm. So what Minakshi did instead was to say, here's a beautiful public database of functional MRI responses that was just released by some very generous researchers, Kendrick Kaye and some of his colleagues. They scanned subjects for eight sessions looking at thousands of natural images. So they get this beautiful data set in which each person saw thousands of images and they just very generously give it to the public to play with. And we're like, oh, yes, oh, yes. (laughs) And so we decided that instead of using those data to test specific hypotheses, we would take the data and apply some math, which is basically a mathematical way of grabbing the data by the scruff of the neck and saying, speak to me. And so this math basically says... Tell me what the basic dimensions are in the response across all of these stimuli.
1: No, I just lost you. What does that mean?
2: Okay, so it's a, it's, you have the response of each three-dimensional pixel or voxel in each subject's brain, in each case to thousands of different images. So now picture a big old array that has thousands of images crossed with thousands of little pieces of brain.
1: So let me tell you what I think you're saying. Yeah. It sounds to me like you're saying you have a way of sorting through all of the responses to all of the pictures, and when the same area responds to a given picture, it gives you a clue about what that where the area is and what it's responding to. How 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 far off is that?
2: Uh, it's not quite right. Okay, let me let me just try again. So we scan you. Let's suppose we pop you in the scanner eight times for 16 hours, and we show you thousands of images. Yeah. Now for every little piece of your visual cortex, we know how strongly that tiny piece responds to each of 10,000 images. Mm-hmm. So now we can take that big pile of data and we can apply some math and say, what are the main kinds of responses that happen in Alan's visual cortex? And and the thing about that that's so cool is that there's nothing about this analysis that's specific to a particular hypothesis. We're just taking a huge data set and asking it to tell us what the main responses are.
1: So how did that apply to food?
2: Okay, I'll tell you. So when we did that, what we found is it just popped out of the math. We got selective responses to faces, places, bodies, and words. These were four things that we already knew existed. So that's a positive control. That's when you use a new method and you rediscover something you already know. Hmm. So that was cool. But then we got a fifth one, and it was food. And we just looked at this new component, and all of the top images were food images. And at first we said, well, that's ridiculous. We've looked for this before. We didn't see it. I don't believe it. And we spent about four months trying to make it go away. We thought, oh, it's just the color because food is colorful. Hmm. And then we thought, oh, it's just the curvy plates because most of the food is on a plate. Hmm. And then we went through, it's just this, it's just that, it's just the other. No, none of, those, none of those hypotheses worked out. It's actually food. But it's pretty exciting and surprising to me because food is a weird category for visual cortex. In what way? Well... Food makes sense that the brain would care about food. We got to eat to survive, right? Yeah. But what is it doing in visual cortex? Like most of the other specializations we see in visual cortex are for things that are perceptually coherent categories.
1: Well, I think it's important to be able to see what you're going to eat. And if we were any better at it, we would never have eaten raw oysters.
2: <laughs> totally. We do need to, to see food to find it, to evaluate it, to decide whether to eat it. But what's weird about it in the brain is that the other categories that have selective machinery are for visually very coherent categories. Like faces all look the same, more or less. Bodies are pretty similar from one but person But foods to have another.
1: all different shapes.
2: Yeah. Think about a piece of broccoli, a banana, a plate of lasagna, a bowl of salad what do these have in common visually? Like nothing.
1: So how, that's so interesting. How does it build up in the brain to be able to recognize all those shapes with a common denominator that's so abstract and physical, food?
2: Exactly. That is the puzzle. And at first we thought, okay, it's not the visual properties that are making the food stick together. It's the fact that we know this is food. And the part of your brain that cares about food must be somehow instructing visual cortex to put all this stuff together and call it a thing.
3: Hmm.
2: But we've been testing that hypothesis recently with artificial neural networks. Hmm. So the thing about an artificial neural network is you can train it on a massive amount of visual information, uh, but, but you don't have to tell it, hey, food is a special thing, right? You can say, okay, this is broccoli, that's pizza, this is a dog, that's a toaster, that's a sofa. There's nothing about that training regime that tells it that the, that the broccoli and the pizza should go together. Hmm. But in the artificial neural networks, it discovers food as a category too, even hmm. though it doesn't know anything about the meaning of food to humans. So we think that might suggest that even though all of the different kinds of food seem really visually different from each other, Maybe they have some common perceptual properties that make them stick together. And maybe it's not just that we care about food that's why they stick together as a category in the brain.
1: Is there any clue about why that is? I mean, I can understand that couch and potato go together. (laughs) (laughs) But is the gut giving any information to help make the connection between the, the shape and what it actually is?
2: Uh, I, I think it probably is, but the but the point of using the artificial neural networks is that even without those kinds of clues, apparently, based on visual information alone, artificial neural networks seem to extract the idea that food is a special category.
1: Are you pursuing this further? Oh,
2: yeah, yeah. We're trying to figure out what it is about food um, that 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 region responds to. And I'll tell you, one of the craziest experiments we're going to run um, at the risk of um, having some of my potential subjects not be able to run this experiment. So anybody who hears this cannot be a subject in this experiment. <laughs> but here's what we're going to do. We want to know if that region depends on whether you know that the stuff is food. Ah. So, Alan, you may have heard about a really ridiculous uh, TV series called Is It Cake?,
1: no, I never heard of this.
2: Okay, I hadn't either. My niece has told me about this. Anyway, Is It Cake is this ridiculous show where bakers make cakes that look like real-world objects. <laughs> and, it, and it's so hard to tell that the whole contest is to make a cake that people think is a tennis shoe. And then you slice into it, and they see that it's cake. So we're going to scan people, showing them pictures of cake that looks like a tennis shoe, a purse, a hat, whatever. And then we're going to show them pictures of slices into the cake so you can see it's cake. And then we're going to show them the same pictures again Ah. and see if our food region responds more when you know it's cake than for the same image before you knew it was
1: cake. There are also foods that grow on the vine in unusual shapes for those foods. Some look like a, a figure of a person, Or or a nose and two eyes. I wonder wonder if they would misinterpret them as objects.
2: Right. Good question. There's so many questions here. We don't know whether this region encodes how much you like that food, Mm. how many calories it has, what its nutritional content is, (laughs) when you last ate it. Uh, So we have a whole bunch of fun experiments
1: lined up. When we come back from our break, Nancy Canwisher tells me about another brain area that specializes, this time responding only to music. And what's remarkable is that it recognizes as music not only a piano, sonata, or opera, aria, but also heavy metal or even rap. This program is sponsored by the Codley Foundation, dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is to stimulate scientific research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience to strengthen the relationship between science and society, and to honor scientific discoveries with the Kavli Prize.
0: Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.
1: This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Nancy Canwisher. Tell me about music. What are you finding out about music? Music.
2: Yeah. Okay. Well, we found music in a, using a similar strategy to the way we found food. And again, in that case, we scanned subjects listening to lots of different kinds of natural sounds. So we asked on the web, what are the last 20 categories of sounds you heard? And people say stuff like man speaking. That's number one. I'm sorry to say woman speaking <laughs> is number six. I, I'm doing my best to reverse those statistics. And <laughs> Anyway, I, thought,
1: I thought number one would be mansplaining.
2: Yeah, mansplaining, right. If we had that category, that would be number one. Anyway, stuff like that, dog barking, toilet flushing, ambulance, whatever, telephone. Yeah. So we scan people listening to those sounds. And then we just asked with a similar kind of math, what are the main dominant dimensions of sound responses in the brain, in the auditory cortex? And we found things we already knew, like selective responses to high-frequency sounds and low-frequency sounds. That was already known. Primary auditory cortex separates out high and low-frequency sounds. And so that was reassuring that we rediscovered something we already knew. Hmm. But then we also discovered, it just emerged from the math, that there's a selective response to music. And what's, what's surprising about that is the same thing that's surprising about food. What is in common acoustically between a classical flute solo, a heavy metal band, an opera, a rap artist, a drum roll, all of these things produce a strong response in that neural population. And yet they're so different from each other. So it's a similar puzzle that this other category that we care about, but that's perceptually really heterogeneous has special neural populations in the auditory cortex.
1: Does it matter? Do you get a different response, a different activation if the person is listening to music compared to making music on an instrument?
2: Oh, oh that's interesting. You mean, a response while they're making the music. Yeah. Okay, we haven't tested that. Uh, although I have a colleague in Canada who showed me an MRI compatible cello he's got so he puts uh. people in the scanner lying on their back playing the cello in the scanner I haven't tried that <laughs> but but what we did test is we tested people who are professional musicians versus people who have never taken a music lesson in their life
3: mm-hmm.
2: right in Cambridge Massachusetts it's much easier to find professional musicians than people who've never taken music right. <laughs> <lessons. laughs> But we found some of each, and they all have a music-selective response. So it's not something about extreme levels of musical training. It just arises if you have normal exposure to music.
1: What about infants? Ah! Presumably they haven't heard much music.
2: Well, actually they can hear music in the womb. There's good sound conduction to the womb, and so um, actually they do get—they hear music, they hear speech— Uh, And actually, an amazing grad student who just got her PhD with me and Rebecca Sachs a year ago, Heather Kosakowski, scanned a whole bunch of sleeping infants less than one month old, and she seems to be finding music-selective responses in one-month-old infants. Uh, So we can't tell how it got there, but it's very early developing.
1: You mentioned Rebecca Sachs, who has done work in, uh, along with you, I believe, mm-hmm. on that part of the brain that thinks about what other people are thinking. Mm-hmm. That really interests me a lot because to me, that's part of the essence of communication is to pay really good attention to what's going on in the mind of the person you're trying to communicate with.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. That is the essence of being able to communicate with somebody, is thinking, what do they already know? What do I need to tell them? How will they react if I say this next thing? Right. Uh, and it's really, it's really the essence of being a human being, is spending a lot of your waking minutes thinking about what other people are thinking.
1: How is it possible to figure out what part of the brain is doing that? What condition do you put the person in so that it takes place and you can look at the activated part of the brain.
2: Right. Well, so this was Rebecca Sachs's idea when she started graduate school. I believe she was she might have just been 20 years old. She was very young and but brilliant back then even. And she said she wanted to study theory of mind or thinking about other, you know, how we think about other people's thoughts with functional MRI. And I said, well, that is a really charming idea, but there's no way that is going to work. (laughs) So you're a nice, smart kid. You can try two subjects and it's not gonna work. And then you're gonna get serious and study vision where we can make actual progress. And she kept finding intriguing results. And I kept saying, I don't believe it, do more controls. I don't believe it, do more controls. After three years of this, it's like, okay, you're right. Uh, So what she used was she used uh, many different strategies, but the basic one was something that was taken from some beautiful work in developmental psychology where it's been known for a long time that kids fail what's known as the false belief task uh, until surprisingly late. Like a three-year-old is a really smart uh, individual, but if you ask them a question about uh, what someone knows, um, if what they what that person knows is different from reality, right? then three three year- olds are very confused by that. Mm. and don't get it right, whereas four-year olds boom, no problem. So we use similar questions, really, they're really kind of not even very interesting questions. things like, you know, Joe baked lasagna and put it in the blue dish in his refrigerator. Uh, later that night, his roommate ate the lasagna and put some bread in the blue dish. When Joe opens the refrigerator in the morning, what does he expect to see in the blue dish? Lasagna or bread? Mm. Okay, it's not even hard. Uh, Three-year-olds fail that task. Four-year-olds and up do fine with that task.
1: Just to be clear, to fail that test, you would fail it if you thought that the dish that the man put in the refrigerator had what he put in the refrigerator, but you wouldn't make the connection to the, the bread that was put in by somebody else.
2: No the the correct the correct answer Joe puts lasagna in the fridge and goes away. He doesn't know his roommate puts bread in there. So if you ask what does Joe expect, Joe expects lasagna.
1: Right, but the kid the kid the kid who's too young to
2: yeah they say bread they bread say because bread. they
1: they know where the bread is.
2: Yeah, they don't understand that people can have a belief that differs from reality.
1: Yes, yeah, which is around the time that they learn it's possible to lie.
2: Exactly, exactly. <laughs>
1: You mentioned earlier that one of your graduate students was able to scan infants in an MRI. How how is that possible? Aren't they too squirmy to stay still long enough? I remember when you put me in a scanner once, you told me I had to keep perfectly still.
2: The work with infants, which is all in collaboration with Rebecca Sachs, she's the one who really figured out how to scan infants. It took many, many years. Um, She had to produce her own subjects to learn how to scan infants, Uh, Her son, Arthur, was scanned many, many times in his first year of life, and between Rebecca and Arthur and some intrepid graduate students, it took many years, and they figured out how to get usable data from infants. It's very, very difficult because, you know, infants tend to move in the scanner, and when they move, they blur all the brain imaging data, and we get a mess, and so what you have to do is throw away almost all of your data except for the few little moments when the infants aren't moving. Hmm. And then you have to figure out how to piece together those little moments of non-moving data to try to eke out a signal.
1: So, so what are so, some examples of, of times when it was really worth all that trouble?
2: Well, so Rebecca and Heather, with generously including me kibitzing with them, but really the hard work of Rebecca and Heather showed that that the face selective and place selective and body selective regions we had been studying in the visual cortex of adults are all present by six months of age in infants. Mm. So all of those all of those functionally specific responses are present very early in development, which I think is super exciting.
1: I thought it was interesting in one of your talks that I saw that you said that recognition of, I, I think, words or, or letters, was pronounced in people who had learned to read and not in those who hadn't. Yeah. So it's so it it grows.
2: Yeah. So the the visual word form area is a little region in high-level visual cortex that responds selectively when you look at words and letters. And the thing that's so interesting about that region is that that region, we know, gets its selectivity from that individual's experience. And we know that for a whole bunch of reasons. One, people have only been reading for a few thousand years. Mm. And that's not enough for evolution to have crafted a special machine just for reading. And two, as you say, it shows up in kids age eight after they learn to read. And it's not there in kids age five before they learn to read. Uh, and third, in, um, in people who re- read only one orthography, like me, I'm lame, I only read English. If I'm scanned looking at Arabic or Hebrew or Chinese script, that region does not respond. But in people who are bilingual with, say, English and Hebrew, it responds to both. So that tells us that it's that individual's experience that has trained up that little patch of cortex to respond to that specific kind of stimulus.
1: I know this goes back in our conversation, but let me ask you one more thing about face recognition. Mm-hmm. I remember you saying in one talk that there are three areas related to face recognition. Have you figured out yet why there are three? Why are they separate?
2: Oh, I feel busted. You're so right. There's now more than three. What? And no, I, no, I haven't figured it out, but I'll tell you a few little clues. We know that the fusiform face area um, is critical for recognizing faces. If you have damage to that region, you will not be able to recognize faces. Okay, so we know that. There's another face-selective region that's in a quite different part of the brain. It's around the corner up in the top of the temporal lobe, and it responds much more to videos of faces than stills. Okay, the fusiform face area doesn't care if it's looking at a movie of a face or a still picture of a face. But this other brain region responds three times more to movies of faces than stills. So it's something about the way the face changes over time that that region is interested in. But what we know now is that region also responds to voices. Huh. So it is part of a whole set of nearby regions that are processing complex, high-level social information um, from from people. In that case, somehow putting together their face and their voice. Uh, And there are many mysteries with that part of the brain and how all of that uh, perceptual information about people um, gets integrated together.
1: How many different specialized areas have been found so far?
2: Let's see. I'd say there are about a dozen that I would take to the bank. I would just absolutely bet these are not going to be overturned by future data. And then there's another four or five that we're working on and they look interesting and I wouldn't totally bet on it yet, Um, but I'm hopeful. And uh, there are probably many more that we haven't even thought to look for.
1: Do you have any evidence that they communicate with one another?
2: Well, they have to. They have to. Right? So when we go around and do stuff in the world, we don't just look at a person and say, oh, that's Alan's face. That's it. End of story. We say, okay, there's Alan's face. You know, what should I say to him? What Mm -hmm. is he thinking now? What am I going to say next? Where did I see him last? All, all of those things require other brain regions. So these, all of these regions need to be interacting with, talking to each other, sharing information. Um, and we see this, and this is hard to study because how information moves around in the brain from one region to the next is something I am deeply interested in. But it's going to move around really fast. And so most of our tools aren't good for giving us both the spatial and temporal information we need To see that information moving around.
1: So I would imagine that artificial intelligence could be helpful if you figure out the right right formula.
2: Well, there's actually a huge revolution going on in my field now with the use of artificial neural networks, which have proven to be enormously helpful in understanding the brain. So you know, we read about Chat GPT and all these other things in the news, and you know, your cell phone can suddenly recognize your friends' faces. Their names pop up on your photographs even when you don't ask them to. So, all of this, all of this, has been brought about by the this massive revolution in um, artificial neural networks just over the last decade or so. And so, the interesting thing is, those same artificial neural networks that are so good at object recognition. Um, and producing language, those same networks were not designed to model the brain, and yet they capture a lot of the things the brain does. To me, this is completely non-obvious and fascinating. Like, why should an artificial neural network just trained to classify what object is present in an image? Why should that network work at all like the way the brain does? But it turns out that to a first approximation, there are many, many similarities between those artificial neural networks in the brain. And that is so surprising to me and so cool that we have now built models of the fusiform face area based on artificial neural networks where we can feed those models a completely new image. And we can predict extremely accurately exactly how strongly the fusiform face area will respond to that new image.
1: So you do the experiment on the model.
2: We get a prediction from the model, and then we run it in the brain, and we say, how good is that prediction? And we find that the correlation between the predicted response and the observed response in the brain is 0.9. That's a really high correlation.
1: So that sounds like it can speed up your work.
2: Well, exactly. I'll tell you one way it speeds up our work. So I've wondered for years, you know, I say the fusiform face area responds more to faces than anything else. But what do I know? I've only tested a few dozen stimuli because how long can I keep people in the scanner? I can't test them on thousands of images, Mm. but I can build the model in the network and I can test the model on the entire machine learning database of 3 million images, run it over the weekend. Mm and get all look at all the top images in the model of the fusiform face area. We did that hoping to falsify our hypothesis, hoping that some of those top images that the model predicts the strongest response to might not be faces. And then we could test those in the brain, and this would be a kind of turbocharged way to show that we were wrong. The Scientists like that. Powerful ways to falsify your hypothesis.
1: Yeah, that's great.
2: So we tried that. But all two hundred thousand top images were faces. So, <laughs> so it's just true apparently. Yeah,
1: there was no, it was true. <laughs> you you raise another question in my mind: Is it just human faces we're good at recognizing, or do we include animal faces, other uh, animals? Well-
2: well, I don't think we're as good at recognizing other animals unless we care a lot about those animals. Like mm. I can recognize my dog's face because I love him dearly, um, and you know, other dogs that are related. And sheep farmers are very good at distinguishing one sheep from another sheep, whereas you and I probably couldn't. No. Um, but that's a behavioral question about the ability. In fact, the fusiform face area is going to respond strongly to all of those faces. It's kind of indiscriminate. It just like anything that's got basically the basic structure of a face, it'll give you a a very strong response.
1: I wish we could talk longer, but our time is running out. However, we end every show with seven quick questions. Okay. Of all the things you could understand, what do you wish you really understood?
2: I would like to understand how information travels from one brain region to another, how it knows where to go, what shunts it in one direction rather than another direction. I think that would be really cool.
1: How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong?
2: Oof, with great difficulty. (laughs) (laughs) With great delicacy, maybe I should say.
1: (laughs) What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you?
2: Oh my God, I get asked weird questions all the time. I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank on that. I'm (laughs) not coming up with anything very good.
1: How do you stop a compulsive talker?
2: Mm, uh, By looking away uh, and then interrupting if needed.
1: Let's say you're sitting at a dinner table next to someone you've never met. How do you begin a real authentic conversation?
2: I ask people what they're excited about.
1: Hmm. What gives you confidence?
2: Uh, The incredibly brilliant and fun and engaged young people in my lab who it is just a thrill to work with. And uh, I think, I think we're in good shape with this generation coming up.
1: Okay. Here's the last one. What book changed your life?
2: Oh my God. Um, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't have a good answer to that. I'll have a good answer. Like tonight or tomorrow, but
1: I but it, I e- have one right there for E-mail you. Email me up. Okay. <laughs> well, this has been so much fun talking with you. You're, you're exploring the great frontier on the horizon that we've been trying to understand since we've been here.
2: Well, we have a huge amount of fun in my lab um, getting to explore the basic organization of the human mind. How cool is that?
1: This has been clear and vivid, at least I hope so. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring this episode. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Nancy Canwisher is professor of cognitive neuroscience at MIT and an investigator at MIT's McGovern Institute for Brain Research. Last year, she received the National Academy of Sciences Award in the Neurosciences for her pioneering work in the functional organization of the human brain. Her MIT OpenCourseWare course, Introduction to the Human Brain, has been viewed over 10 million times. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Shumay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohene and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Adam Mastroianni. He's a social psychologist who's interested in why we're always getting things wrong about our social environment, about the people around us. He's found some interesting things about us like the fact that being smarter doesn't make you happier, and that most of us don't know how to end the conversation. And then there's this study that got him into the New York Times.
0: We asked people, how kind, honest, nice, and good are people today? And then what about at various points in the past, uh, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, the year in which you were 20, the year in which you were born? And over and over
1: again, people tell us people are less good today than they used to be. They're less kind. They're less nice, less honest. They're less ethical. They're less moral. They feel like some switch has been
0: flipped in society. Something's gone wrong and we need to fix it. We need to turn things around. But in this case, that negative trend that people perceive, it isn't there. And so whatever you would do to turn it around isn't going to do anything because it didn't do anything in the first place. It's like turning on the sprinkler system in a building that's not on fire. You're you're just going to make everybody wet, and you're not going to help anything.
1: Adam Mastroianni, who also happens to be a professional improviser. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.